0: Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of the Motherkind podcast with me your host Zoe Blasky, where each week I chat about all things motherhood and well-being so if this is your first time listening to the podcast a very warm welcome. And if you are a regular listener, then thank you. I am so aware of how many amazing podcasts are out there and how time poor we all are. So that you choose to listen to the Motherkind podcast makes me very happy and I am endlessly grateful. So thank you. My mission with this podcast is to inspire you to reconnect back to yourself, whatever that might look like for you. Perhaps it's reconnecting with your health and self-care. Maybe it's looking at your career and your relationships, or maybe how you talk to yourself, and finally looking at being kinder to yourself. So I talk to therapists, doctors, naturopaths, coaches, career experts, and everything in between to help you become your happiest, healthiest, and most alive version of you, because that is what I think is the most inspiring thing to become for our children. So a few of you got in touch and said that you're quite enjoying my little intro that I do before the start of the episode about what's going on for me or um, some of my musings. So here it goes, I will keep this really brief. Um, this week I have been thinking about connection and community and vulnerability and the role that it plays in that because last week I went to a gathering, I suppose you would call it, of amazing women, some of whom I knew like Lucy Sheridan and Emma Rushton and some I had never met before. Um, We sat around a table in a hotel meeting room in London and we all took our masks off. And what I mean by that is we all spoke about what was really going on for us. Not the surface level stuff, you know, not the I'm fines, but what was really going on. And it really struck me that at our core, us women so often grapple with the same things, you know, the same fears, the same concerns that we're not enough or that we're doing it wrong or that everyone else has it right and we don't somehow, that we are perpetually unique, which of course is not true. We are so similar in the struggles that we face. And it struck me in this group of women, there were nine of us and I only knew two, so many that I'd never met. It struck me how deep the connection came between us, just in an afternoon, because we were being so vulnerable. Now I'm not vulnerable with some of my closest friends in the way that I was with those women and it really got me thinking about how important connection is but that we can only get that connection and that feeling of really being seen and really being heard when we're willing to be vulnerable. So I was wondering whether you'd be up for taking a bit of a vulnerability challenge with me this week. So the first thing is, if you haven't seen it, go and watch Brené Brown's TED Talk. I'm sure you have, the whole world has. But she talks so eloquently about the struggle with being vulnerable, and I really relate to that. I find it easier now, partly because of my years of 12-step, where it's built on being vulnerable with people you don't know, and partly because I feel really comfortable with myself now that I feel like I can be vulnerable. I'm also really good now at judging who's safe and who isn't safe. I didn't used to be good at that. I used to tell too much to the wrong people and not open up to the people that were safe. So I've turned that on its head and I'm better at it today. So I'm wondering whether, first thing, would you go and watch that Brené Brown TED Talk? If you haven't already, I suspect you have. And secondly, find someone in your group that you think might be safe so it might be a family member it might be a friend and i wonder if you could just get a little bit more vulnerable 10 percent more vulnerable just test what it feels like to take that mask off just like i did last week with that group of women and notice how deeper the connection is The other thing I'd say to you on this around our insights is don't compare your insights, so how you feel about yourself and the world, to someone else's outsides. So often what can block our vulnerability and our connection is when we feel like other people around us have got it all sorted. And I know that for me, when I was at my lowest and I was struggling the most with my mental health in my early 20s, I looked very, very put together on the outside. It was one of my coping tools. So if you're feeling not great on the inside, just remember, don't compare how you feel on the inside to how someone looks on the outside. Chances are they're feeling exactly the same as you on the inside. So remember that one. And the second one is just to see, as I've said, if you can just get a little bit more vulnerable this week and I'd love to hear how it goes. You know, on this motherhood journey, it's so challenging and I'm thinking more and more about how important connection and community is but a deep connection and community not just surface level real unveiling of what's really going on for us because I think from there we can start to really support ourselves in a different way so that's what I'd love from all of you this week if you're up for it now on to this week's episode it is with Amelia and Emily Nagoski they are identical twins, believe it or not, and they've written a book together called Burnout, The Secret to Solving the Stress Cycle. So they both have doctorates, but in opposite fields. One is a scientist and the other is a musician. So they approach well-being from a really practical and scientific standpoint. This book on burnout, if you follow me on Instagram, I've been pretty evangelical about it. I absolutely love it. It looks at burnout from the female perspective only. It also looks at burnout from a societal perspective as well as an individualistic perspective. I think it's the first book to do so, which is why I'm so excited about it. So the book is divided into two parts. The first part is, as they call it, putting out the fire if you're in burnout what can you do to get out of burnout and the second part looks at why did burnout occur in the first place so looking at why the fire started so I follow that broadly in the podcast we jump around a bit I really really enjoyed it they are highly knowledgeable the stats that they have just at their fingertips is really impressive and they were also really funny and really vulnerable I really really enjoyed it so I hope you enjoy it. There is a little bit of swearing in the last three quarters or so. So if you're in the car with little people, just be conscious of that. And I hope you really enjoy it. If you did, you know what to do. Pop over to Instagram and leave a review on iTunes. Here it is. So, Emily and Amelia, welcome to the Motherkind podcast. Thank you for having us. I am so excited. I've already been posting on Instagram about this book, yeah. Burnout, because I was so excited. I don't think a book has been written about burnout in this way from the female perspective. Well, I've not seen it and I'm pretty prolific in this, <laughs> in this type of book. So first of all, I wanted to thank you personally and for everyone that I know is going to read and take so much from this Yay. book. It's so validating. It talks about this subject in such an intelligent, and interesting and accessible way. I just absolutely loved it. I wanted to start with a quote, which I don't normally do, but I fell in love with these words. So I wanted to start with it, which is that the gap between what it's really like to be a woman and what people expect a woman to be is a primary cause of burnout. We exhaust ourselves trying to close the gap between the two. Familiar of that. I I was just about to say Emily wrote that. (laughs) I was like, these words. I think I was reading this in my bath and I was like, oh my God, I need to share these words. I haven't heard it written so eloquently and clearly that burnout is what it's like to actually be a modern woman in this crazy society and what people expect us to be. Mm -hmm. So are we all burnt out? Are all women burnt out from your perspective?
1: In a way. At least all of us spend some time in that state of burnout. So technically speaking, burnout for women is emotional exhaustion, which is to say that we stay in a state of elevated emotional stress, fear, anxiety, anger, Without ever having a chance to rest from it or to oscillate into a state of peace and balance. And it's when we stay stuck in that state that we burn out. And I don't know a single woman who doesn't resonate with the experience of just like, I feel like I've used up everything I have and I'm still not meeting the standard that I feel like the world is setting for me. I'm overwhelmed and exhausted by everything I have to do and I still worry that I'm not doing enough. I don't know any woman who hasn't had that experience.
0: Nor do I. That was a great description, but can you take it down a notch and get slightly more granular as to what someone might be thinking and feeling if they're in burnout? Because what I want is for any listeners who are in it right now, I want them to be going, yes, 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 so that we can help them right now move through it.
2: So. The day of a burnt-out person often starts in bed with a total inability to get out of bed. You have not had enough sleep, or even if you had the right number of hours of sleep for last night, you're still suffering a sleep deficit maybe months and months old, and you just have never had a chance to fully recover. So usually it's really hard to get out of bed. Do you have time, and are you capable of brushing your teeth and taking a shower? Are there too many other things to do? Just do the things that will make you feel as clean and healthy and balanced and ready to face the world as you possibly can – Often, burnt out people either don't have the energy or the time, and they feel really terrible for not having the energy and the time. And one of the key parts of the burnout is the shame that goes along with, I'm so tired, I'm so ashamed that I'm so tired, I'm supposed to be able to do it all. And here it is, it's only 8 a.m., and you're already ashamed of everything that you are and how you live your life. So if you've got kids to get out the door and lunches to pack and all the other things to get ready for, and also if you have your own job to get to, now already, I don't want that day and I'm exhausted. So you actually somehow manage to get through your day one breath at a time, one step at a time. Somehow you eat something for lunch, whether you had time to make it something that would actually nourish you. I don't know. You cry in the toilet stall at lunchtime. Yeah, there's a certain time of day where you just close the door and you have a cry for a minute. And then, like, get back to the thing you have to do. And you're not sure why you cried or if you even feel better now. But you keep going because you have to. Mm -hmm. And you get home. And the kids are coming home. And there's dinner to make and homework to do. This is if you only work one job. If you have, for example, a second job. If your partner has a second job. If your kids are teenagers and they're working jobs, too. And everything gets much more complicated. And then the neighbors next door, their kids are also taking swim lessons and going to blimp riding – lessons or whatever it is that people do, and you feel like, I'm not doing those things. I must be a terrible mother. What am I doing with my time in my life that I haven't gotten my children a blimp yet? And that's obviously a completely unreasonable standard, but you've feel like it's real and you're supposed to be meeting it and you're not.
1: And it sure does look like everybody else is on top of it and doing all the things and doing fine. And you just feel like you are crumbling to pieces inside and just barely dragging yourself through the day. You probably feel physically very unwell. You probably dislike what's happening to your body and the ways that it's changed over the last, I don't know, decade. And maybe... You felt so bad. You've even been to a doctor and been like, I feel terrible. What's
2: wrong with me? And they don't know. They don't really have an answer for you. Maybe they tell you to eat more vegetables or to get more exercise. And you're thinking, yes, I should be doing that. Do you have time to do that? you may not have time to do that. You read the advice that says, oh, find exercise that's fun for you to motivate you to do it. (laughs) And so like you love dancing. So you try to find time to go dancing, but you don't have time to go dancing. So you decide to make it a thing where you're going to enrich your children's lives and you take them dancing, but they hate it and they don't want to. And they don't have time either because they have blimp lessons to go to. (laughs) So now you feel really terrible about everything, physically terrible. Your doctor doesn't have an answer for you. And society is showing you on Instagram that everyone else is doing it right. And you're the only one who feels like crap. It's not true. And you look online and the advice is green smoothies. Yeah. Oh, I'm going to drink like 10 green smoothies a day. You start the first day and you have two green smoothies and then you have to go back to the market and get more stuff to make this. and you don't have time for that. And also no energy.
0: (laughs) And this is what I love that you say, which is wellness is not a state of being. It is a state of Action. action. Now, I wanted to ask you about this because I think, you know, that picture that you just described, if every listener isn't nodding along, I'll beat my hand.
1: <laughs> that is not at all from experience.
0: That's <laughs> <what>. <laughs> well, I'm going to ask you both about this, too. When I read that, I got what you meant, well-being is a state of action. Mm-hmm. However, from that picture that you just described, surely what that person needs is less action. Sure, that person needs more being and less doing. So how does that work? Describe to us what well-being is to you. And then second part of the question, I want to talk about how we get out of this, the tools we can use to fight this fire.
2: The end of that quote from the book that wellness is not a state of being, it's a state of action. The rest of that is it's the freedom to oscillate between the cycles of being human. So if your action is always pushing forward, pushing forward, pushing forward, pouring out, depleting yourself... That's action that's not an oscillation. There has to be action and back to rest and connection and back to isolation. So it's not just action alone. It's action that oscillates.
0: And this is human giver syndrome, which I related so much to this. I mean, I would say I'm in recovery from being a human giver (laughs) after years of doing it. So that state when your action is perpetually giving, Mm -hmm. leading your energy, you call that human Giver Syndrome. Syndrome. Can you tell us a bit more about that, how it happens, Mm -hmm. and why someone finds themselves in that place where they're giving themselves away, almost perpetually, almost addictively? Oh, yes. So we get
1: the language from a very dark but short and wonderful book called Down Girl, The Logic of Misogyny by the moral philosopher Kate Mann. She posits a world where There are two types of humans. There's human beings, and implicit in that term is the idea that these humans have a moral responsibility to be their full humanity, their human beings. And the other group of people are the human givers, who have a moral responsibility to give their full humanity. Guess which one the women are, right? (laughs) In our formulation, It's not just that we are givers, it's that we have human giver syndrome. We live in a world contaminated by this false but highly contagious belief that women have a moral responsibility to be pretty, happy, calm, generous, and attentive to the needs of others. Not only do we have this moral responsibility, but if we fall short in any way, we deserve to be punished. And if no one steps up and punishes us, we will go ahead and just beat the crap out of ourselves instead. And I want to make clear that giving itself, being generous and attentive to other people's needs, is not the problem. The problem is that we do this in a context where there are some people who feel entitled to take everything we have and Any amount that we give just makes them feel more entitled to take even more from us without ever reciprocating. When it comes to rest and sleep, we write about this a lot. The researchers actually call sleep an invisible workplace for women. So there's the first shift of going to work. There's the second shift of housework and childcare, which even in the most balanced nations in the world, which includes the United States and the UK, it's 26 hours a week for women and 10 hours a week for men. There's still this imbalanced second shift. And then there is this third shift where women are expected even in their sleep to be the ones who get up and disrupt their sleep in order to do the caretaking of the children in the household. And even if in a heterosexual couple, if the husband is sick, he expects his female partner to wake up in the middle of the night and take care of him. And that's all grounded in this idea that it is women who have this moral responsibility to sacrifice their time, their energy, their love, their affection, their bodies, their hopes and dreams, their very lives on the altar of other people's comfort.
0: Wow. (laughs) I think everyone will relate to this idea of giving energy away. And I think it's really important that you talked about, we're not talking about giving, because women are wired for connection. We are wired differently.
1: All humans are wired for connection, actually. We've been depriving men of their capacity for connection, of their hunger for connection. This is the thing, is when we ask, so everybody, what's the solution to human giver syndrome? Sort of the first instinctive response is to say, well, let's everybody be a human being who has a moral responsibility to be their humanity. But If you think about a world where everybody feels sort of entitled to take whatever they can get, the first time I talked about this, I was with a group of undergraduate students, and there was a philosophy major who raised his hand and said, solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short, just (laughs) quoting hops right off the top of his head, because the result is perpetual warfare or totalitarianism, Fun, But if we imagine instead a world where everyone is a kind of giver, where everyone feels a moral responsibility to give and care for other people— to the extent that they are capable, then when one giver is feeling depleted and exhausted, the other givers around them notice that and are like, hey, you need to go take a nap, run yourself a bath, we'll make dinner, we'll talk it all through, we'll go to bed early, it's all going to be okay. Nobody feels entitled to take from anybody else. Everybody feels a responsibility for caring for everyone. And so nobody gets fully depleted. And
0: didn't women used to fulfill that role far better for each other when we were living in more integrated, communities
1: for sure there's something historical about this sort of nuclear family situation where we're like tiny pockets of families and it's really not a sustainable way to live to have just like one family living in a home in isolation that whole it takes a village thing is like very real it takes way more than two adults it takes way more than one adult to successfully raise children into competent humans
0: In my world, you know, I talk about this stuff almost every day. The conversation is changing around the importance of that phrase. And I think people sometimes say it flippantly, but there's so much depth and truth to that idea. Yeah. So is that what you would say then? So if someone is... Nodding ferociously, and they are in burnout right now, yeah. As you described, Amelia, that day that you described can't get out of bed, can't have to get about. out of bed, everything's overwhelming me. I'm in perpetual shame because I'm not living up to this idealistic standard that I think everyone else is reaching. Mm-hmm. What does someone do? We're going to come on to you know, you describe it in the book as the first part is about. Putting out the fire. Mm-hmm. The second part is looking at why the fire started. Mm-hmm. So we're gonna come on to a lot of the stuff, Emily, that you were just talking about the societal <laughs> challenges. But I want to just get into let's put the fire out mm-hmm. and then let's look at some of the structural challenges.
2: If you feel like you're not enough, that's a form of loneliness. And how you solve that is you reach out for help. If you are exhausted and overwhelmed, you do not need more grit. You do not need more persistence. You need more help. So reach
1: out, get help, help yes. each other. So step number one is connecting with other people who have a similar shared experience and acknowledge that this is how you feel.
0: How does someone do that? Let's say they came from a childhood where vulnerability was shamed. Yeah. Where asked? Oh, you for, mean like us? Yeah. Oh yeah. And help. When someone asked for help, they were brushed away. So to them, that feeling yeah. of the vulnerability... I think sometimes we can say these things, but because of the work that I do with clients, the deep work around mm-hmm. this stuff. Some of my clients say, I feel like I'm going to die yeah. when I yeah. ask for help. Yes, yes. You're relating. Yes. yes. How does someone who is in this state, everything they want is on the other side of that ability to take the mask off, mm-hmm. to cry in front of a friend, mm-hmm. to phone someone up and say, can you have the kids for the afternoon? But they just can't get there. What would your advice be? I would say it depends
1: on the depth of the wound that's causing that fear. If it's coming from intense childhood adversity, from trauma, from chronic neglect, then it's coming from a place of such injury that I'm not going to recommend a person just try it. Just go to a friend and say, hey, let me be vulnerable and authentic with you about the ways I feel inadequate. That's too big. Start by having a small, quiet conversation with your barista, like smiling and complimenting their hair and having them smile back at you. And like that superficial, pleasant interaction is the starting place for your brain recognizing that the world makes some kind of sense and is not inherently threatening. You start small.
0: That's very, very helpful. Does that make sense? Very helpful.
1: So that if you go big and talk to someone and it fails, then you give up. Are you ever you going to try to choose again? Choose
0: the person so that carefully. You're going to connect with yeah.
1: Very, very, very. Carefully. Which is one of the reasons why, if it's coming from a place of really deep trauma or neglect, then your capacity to anticipate who's going to be good to share with has probably been impacted in a pretty critical way so that you don't know how to tell who's good to trust and who is not good to trust. Another really gentle, beautiful starting place is with animals, pets, like the look in my dog's eyes when I come home. If I had to choose between my dog's facial expression when I come home and my husband's facial expression when I come home, like, he's awesome. He's great. He's totally there for me. But man, my dog's eyes, like the soft glow and the wagging tail Like, there's no expectation. There's no falling short with my dog. There's just, I am so happy to see you, and I don't care what didn't work for you today. I just freaking am glad to see you. And this is why
0: pet therapy is
1: so effective. Horses,
0: cats, even fish and snakes. Okay, so the first thing we would say is connect Mm -hmm. with all of that brilliant information.
2: I want to go a little bit further with that. Oh, great. Practicing with random strangers in low-risk interactions, yes, animals also Mm -hmm. low-risk. They also give something back that's really valuable. But human beings have the capacity to connect on higher planes. So if a relationship with God or any kind of creator deity or just the nature and spirit of inspiration or nature itself or nature herself, if you can turn towards something that's larger than you. And that doesn't have to include a community of human beings. It can just be a direct connection if that's part of your faith or spiritual journey. And at the same time, there's that voice in your head that's telling you people aren't safe. I can't turn to people. If I'm going to be vulnerable, it's going to be a weakness and I'm in danger. Turn toward that voice because that came from somewhere and ask her, hey, I hear you're really afraid of something is, uh, Is there something you want to tell me? What are you afraid of? What do you think is going to happen? Turn toward Mm -hmm. her with kindness and compassion and empathy for what she's been through and gratitude for what she's trying to protect you from. And if you're thinking of her not as just you and your own pain, but you unblend from her and feel like she's someone else, it's so much easier to be compassionate towards someone else. I totally agree. So you turn toward that voice in your head and say, hey, I hear that you're afraid, I think that it would be good for us to connect to these other people, but let's make sure that what you're afraid of is not going to be a threat to us. Let's talk about this yeah. and listen to what she has to say.
0: And this is what Kristen Neff teaches. Yes. yes. She's been on the podcast. We talk so it, Oh, so someone, Oh, Kristen Neff. Yes.
1: We're both like waving at she ourselves like it. we're turned off. Have
0: you done her trainings? And oh my gosh, she's amazing. Anyway, so someone, if they're relating with that, A, they can get in touch with me because I teach a lot of this stuff, or they can go and listen to Kristen Neff. She mm-hmm.
2: oh, talks yes.
0: about. This rhetoric that is all over Instagram of, like, tell your inner critic to piss off. Nope. Don't. Nope. Don't do Don't. that. Still, Don't try to you. silence her. Still if you're
1: angry you. and yelling at someone and they're like, no be quiet. I'm not going to listen to you. Does that de-escalate the situation? Makes it worse. Of course it does, yeah. right? So you turn toward this inner critic with kindness and compassion. And in the book, we describe her as the madwoman in the attic. Yes, I um, love
0: that Jada reference. Exactly. Yeah,
1: and her job is to bridge this unbridgeable gap we started with between who you are and who the world expects you to be. No wonder she's pissed off. Because she's got and an afraid. impossible job, right? It's just like not possible to bridge this gap, but that's her whole job. And so she's yelling at you about all the ways. You're falling short for this expected thing. And yeah, like the Instagram story is to like give yourself affirmations and tell her to be quiet and say, no, you're wrong. I am enough. Just tell yourself I am enough. That's not going to work. No. The reason she's yelling is not because of any fundamental flaw in you, but because of the gap between who you truly are and who the world's expecting you to be. So when you instead turn toward her with kindness and compassion and listen, knowing that she's trying to help, she's trying to keep you safe so that you're meeting these expectations and no one's going to abandon you because you're not falling short of these expectations. You thank her for the way she's trying to help you. You acknowledge that she is trying to help even though it's not necessarily super productive, you listen to her fears. When I ask people to describe their mad woman, they start out with all these unpleasant characteristics like she's really mean, she's really pompous, but then they talk about her vulnerability and her sadness and how tired and grieving she is because of how hard she's been working and how little progress she's been able to make because her job is impossible of helping us to like bridge this gap.
0: Yeah, I think that's such an important point for people to hear. So we've got connection, then we've got turn towards that mad woman in the attic, that Mm -hmm. critic that's Connection with yourself. Connection with yourself, exactly, that you're not good enough. What's the next one? I want to talk about completing the stress cycle.
2: Anything that feels like a threat. Perhaps in our long historical evolution, it could have been a lion on the plane you know, field kind of plane, not the... Savannah. Snakes. Savannah. <laughs> savannah, like, savannah, yeah. Or there it could go. be snakes on a plane, or it could be the pile of laundry that you feel really guilty about, or the fact that you ate burgers for dinner instead of like a lentil stew, because lentil too, took four times too long to make, and so now you feel... All of that can feel like a threat. But if it's a lion on the savannah, how you're going to deal with the stress that has been initiated by that lion is by running away from it, obviously. And you either get eaten by the lion in which case none of the rest matters or you escape the lion and you duck into somebody's hut and you close the door and you've escaped the lion you hear
0: it paw away so and you'll celebrate and you're this yay is done what all all my audience will know about which is the fight flight, or flight fight or flight, flight freeze. right yeah okay so that's that's yes, we're talking about here. So the crucial thing. I think everyone thing, hears that these days.
1: Like we hear about the stress response cycle and we learn like how stress works in our bodies. And we don't talk about is that the way our body wants to move all the way through the stress response cycle from the activation of the stress response to the behavior to save ourselves to the access of safety. That process is separate from whatever is required actually to deal with the thing that triggered the stress. When it's a lion, they match what you do to deal with the stress in your body matches what you do to deal with the lion that caused the stress. But the pile of laundry, doing that laundry, dealing with the self-criticism, dealing with traffic, dealing with the guilt about the lentil stew, what you do about that has nothing to do with the way your body wants to complete the stress response cycle that got activated. You have to deal with the stress that happens in your body, and you have to deal with the stress sores actually out in your life. And those are two separate processes, and we have to do both.
0: This is great, and I love the way you describe this in the book. But let's break it down, because yep. this will be new, I imagine, to most people. Yeah, so, it was new to me. Ah, yeah. so the stress is the body's hormonal response to a trigger, now, right. that could be the washing, that could be traffic. The, how, yeah, and how messy your Cat kid's hair is, something. Your boss. Yeah, that's what we're calling the stress. Right. The so, stress is the reaction in your body. It's the thing that happens inside your body. Yes. And what you're saying is, you can't just do the washing and move on. Right. You have to complete the hormonal changes inside your body right. have happened as well.
2: Right. So let's say back on the savannah, the lion mysteriously gets struck by lightning and is killed, and you are saved by the lightning through no action of your own. Your body is still going to be all wired up and keyed up and not going to know what to do with itself. It will not feel safe again until it completely works its way through that hormonal process.
0: Amazing. Okay.
2: The kind of interruption that happens in the 21st century is usually not lightning, but the kind of threat that usually happens is usually not lions. So let's say your boss says something really nasty to you and that you feel a stress response initiate. And how can you respond to your boss? It would complete the stress response cycle if you punched him in the face, but (laughs) you would then lose your job and that would be a whole other very stressful situation. So in order to protect yourself in the long term, you shut down the stress response cycle temporarily, hopefully, and you smile and nod and just let him be what he is. And you go through the processes that you have to go through of reporting him to HR or whatever else you have to do. But your body does not know filling out forms at HR as a thing that's going to make it safe, even though really that might be the best possible solution, somewhere else in your life a little bit later that day. You need to have a big old cry. You need to get a good night's sleep. You need to do a 20-minute Zumba class, something to complete the stress response cycle so your body knows I ran away from that line and we're okay now.
0: So completing the stress response cycle doesn't happen in our heads. It happens <laughs> yeah, the in our one body.
1: thing that truly doesn't work is telling yourself that you're safe now.
0: Right. So some of the ideas that I love that you talk about from completing the stress cycle is the first one, feeling the feelings. Yeah. Sounds so simple, doesn't it? So hard to do, I think, for so many of us, me included. So that would look like getting home, doing what you need to do, having a big cry in the boss example. Yeah. yeah would that do it, releasing the stress.
2: It can. Of course, it depends on, again, the size of the wound. Your body's going to want to respond in different ways to different kinds of threats. Of course. Emily talks about specifically in her life the ways that certain kinds of stress get put in different places Mm -hmm. in her body. Do you want to talk about the massage
1: therapist? Oh, I was in the middle of a massage and I realized that he was working on my left shoulder, which was just this naughty, terrible mess. I was in the middle of the book tour for Come As You Are and I had this sudden insight that, oh, my left shoulder is where I keep my imposter syndrome. So when I'm feeling these twinges of tightness and stiffness and pain in my left shoulder specifically, I know, oh, look, that's a sign that I'm like trying to fake it for somebody. I'm feeling inadequate and like who I really am isn't enough. And so I can think about that and try to solve that particular stressor and get a massage to get those kinks worked out because it gets really intense. So that's dealing with both the stressor itself, the feeling of inadequacy, and with the physiological tightness in my shoulder. And not everybody has that sort of specificity in the way their body holds on to stress. It just all goes to their digestive system.
2: Well, some of the ways so that unfortunately, you really stress. There's not like a a prescriptive here. Do this and you'll feel better. Yeah. It's like a here. Try all these things and find what works. Yeah,
0: what works for you?
2: I have to say, the most effective thing for me is I take horseback riding lessons. Because for me, even just physical activity was not enough. When I burned out and ended up in the hospital with stress-induced inflammation and pain. I was already working out three, four times a week, eating what people told me I was supposed to eat. It didn't work. For me, what works is when I engage my body with my mind and my imagination, and especially with connections with other creatures, which is one of the reasons why I'm a coral conductor and my work feels so good for me. I feel like I'm my best self on the podium because what I'm doing is very active physically. It's very mindful and staying very present to the moment and connecting with the composer and the music itself and the singers in the room and my piano player or any other instrumentalists. But of course, that's also work for me. So it's laden with responsibility. So it's not, it feels fantastic, but it's not like a refreshing new me kind of thing. Horseback riding does it because it's so physical so demanding like with my actual muscles and requires me to be in the moment if you get distracted when you're on a horse you're gonna fall off
0: a bit like skiing isn't
2: it (laughs) yes (laughs) skiing is a lot the same way you have to be really mindful the whole time otherwise it's a little bit dangerous yeah or very dangerous Dangerous. yes and horseback riding also happens to contain the element of connection with this great big hilarious animal with a personality of its own and also my instructor who's constantly you know reminding me lengthen your legs Lower your hands, hands forward, hands back. Relax your shoulder. It's like a lot it's to do at one it's time it's now. so intense. It's and it yeah, and it's there's so much to it. And I think that's one of the things that's required just for me. It has to be all the things all at once in but order to work.
0: you know, you live busy. Lives, we are being triggered with these stressors, I imagine almost perpetually. How often do you horse ride? Surely not every night. No. When so, I have
2: a lot of time and I'm making extra time, I would ride twice a week.
0: Okay. Do you have a daily? way that you're completing this stress cycle? Is it something we have to do every day or just when we notice the cortisol? You don't have to do it
2: every day, but you're going to be so glad if you do do it every day. Luckily, it's not just about physical activity or mindfulness. There's a whole list, obviously. There's the like book. seven in the And
0: book. my favorite one was kissing for six seconds. Oh, six yeah. Six-second kiss, 20-second husband. Hug. How's delighted? it going? Oh, yeah. He's delighted.
1: <laughs> that's fantastic. To be From clear, that you? is one six-second kiss. Not six one-second kisses. <laughs> yeah, no. It like, is. Like, <laughs> that's a long period of time, just to clarify for people. It's like It's long. long. That's like, Do you, you time it. you got to really I, like somebody to kiss them long. I start to get
0: uncomfortable about four. This is my husband that I love. Right. Yeah, You've definitely kissed.
1: The last two seconds are the ones that really matter. Because it's past the point where you're like, oh, this was just a kiss. Oh, this is more than a kiss. Yeah. Because it tells your body that, like, this is a person you really deeply trust who can be an emotional home for you, a mm, home base.
0: mm, It's so amazing. In couples therapy, we've had loads of couples therapy. I think this was the one before we got married. And we learned to stare into each other's eyes for Mm -hmm. four minutes. (gasps) That's (sighs) a long time. It's unbelievable what happens. Yeah. Like, the connection... Yeah. We felt, and we still do that now today. And amazing yeah. things bubble
1: up just amazing out of nowhere. Things. Yeah.
0: Sometimes resentment, sometimes a pure love I can't put words to. Right. Sometimes totally random stuff, but it's yeah. just holding that for four minutes. It's, yeah. I would encourage anyone, you know, if you're having a hard time or a great time with your husband, practice it or your partner or even a friend. Mm-hmm. It's a brilliant tool, isn't it? And I yeah. guess that's in the same vein as the yeah. six-second kiss.
1: Yeah. The other thing we recommend in terms of, like, timing is a 20-second hug, mm-hmm. which, again, is, like, an awkward amount of time to hug someone you don't really like and care about. But that's the point, is that if you can hold your own balance and put your arms around a person and be held by them, then that means that you have this place of safety, this person to come home to whom you can trust and make contact with in this really deep way.
2: That's so gorgeous. we've got all these lists of different things you can do yeah. and how you're going to fit into your life. One of my favorite worksheets in the book, the worksheet that helped me the most when we were, you know, writing the book and Emily made a worksheet here. Emily, to try this. The one that I like the most is in the chapter about sleep, which is chapter six. Can't wait to talk <laughs> about sleep. Which is the, the real <laughs> calendar versus the ideal calendar. And there's a 24 hour schedule and you just block out what you do in all of the time. And then you go through and try to see if you can fit in 30 minutes of stress reducing conversation and 30 minutes of paying attention to your food and stuff that you might never think consciously about doing, but maybe you're doing without intentionality and you're going to make sure that it's every day. So I love the worksheet of the ideal calendar where you can Find out where you can put the time in. It doesn't have to be horseback riding every day, but if it's horseback riding once a week and then another day of the week it's something else, another day of the week it's a whole other like Mm -hmm. you probably only grocery shop maybe once a week, maybe twice a week, maybe it's different in the UK. If it's thirty minutes every day of paying attention to your food, if it takes you like an hour to grocery shop, if you're grocery shopping mindfully, that counts for two days worth of paying attention to your food. It doesn't have to be absolutely perfectly scheduled every single day. And that
0: is in the book. It's in the book. People get the book. 180. Yeah, you get the worksheets. Let's <laughs> yeah. talk about sleep because this is another oh, man. super important way that we can heal from that. Yes. But we're mothers. Yes. Mm-hmm. Everyone listening is a mother and sleep is like the <laughs> the thing that you is so close to your grasp but often yeah. we can't just get it. Let's talk about sleep and why it's so important. Let's talk about the 42% figure and yep. then let's talk about what I do, what other mothers do, who have disturbed sleep. Like I was up at Mm -hmm. 1am with a toddler screaming and... Mm -hmm. Sleep. Let's talk about sleep. Yes. <laughs>
1: Amelia has to rain me. I have a whole hour long talk I give just on sleep. And Amelia's like, "Back it up, Emily. They don't need all that because is it news to anybody that sleep is important no. or good for you? No. Like we all know. Like I've got statistics out the wazoo about how important it is. It's good for everything. Sleep is a miracle. There's a French proverb, when you are broken, go to bed. For me, it is the key. If you have to choose between sleep and exercise, choose sleep. Oh, I totally Every single time. Every time. You're setting yourself up for injury if you exercise without getting adequate rest. That said, human giver syndrome, women are expected to sacrifice their sleep. Imagine you show up at work and you're like, I only got four hours of sleep last night because I was a screaming toddler. And then I had to bake six trays of cookies or cupcakes for a school thing and whatever. And everybody's like, oh, Only four hours of sleep, yeah. But really, there's a sort of, like, valor to that. There's a sort of virtue in that exhaustion. Whereas if you showed up at work and were like, hey, everybody, I got nine hours of sleep last night. I feel fantastic. The response is likely to be, that's really nice for you. How nice for you that you got that. Self-care is so important. I don't have that kind of time, but it's so nice for you that you do. Mm. So the culture around sleep is the main barrier. It is not knowledge. It is feeling like we're not supposed to. I have lost count of the number of women who've told me they feel guilty about sleeping which is literally the same as feeling guilty about breathing it is that necessary to us and well, when shows, i ask that why that shows
0: the human giver syndrome in it's worse it yes, when someone's guilty for sleeping for
1: a basic physiological need
0: i mean it literally
1: does begin to degrade your body and various you can die of sleep deprivation it's can slow well believe it. right and a newborn it's used as a torture technique So sleep is that important. We all know it's that important. And yet what it takes in order to access the sleep is not just the decision personally to prioritize our sleep, but creating a sort of emotional infrastructure. We call it the bubble of love. People around us who insist as firmly that we get our own rest as we insist that they get their rest, that we're all taking care of each other and helping each other to overcome this internal voice that's saying, no, no, getting adequate rest is selfish of you. It's more important that you do X, Y, Z than you get the sleep. So it's not just the sleep itself. It's cordoning off the time and also getting help, enlisting the support of the people around you in agreeing that your sleep matters that much.
0: This is fascinating because I coach loads of mums. So we talk about sleep pretty often. Yeah. And in my experience, although this is just a limited experience of, what, 100, 200 mothers, often the husbands will say, would you just go to bed? Go and have a nap. Mm -hmm. I've got it. And my clients will say to me, they feel like they can't, Yeah, human giver syndrome, until... Dot dot dot. The washing's done, the yeah. emails are applied to, the play dates are organized, the crazy mess yes. on the floor is it's human gimmicks syndrome, isn't yes. it? Yes. Mm-hmm. So what does someone do? And I think you are so insightful. This is not a knowledge issue. Mm-hmm. You're know, right. intelligent. Did you know exercise,
1: vegetables, not. and sleep are good for you? Yeah, yeah right? right? Like, <laughs> what? No kidding.
0: exactly. This is not a knowledge issue. So what does someone do who knows? Without reshaming themselves, right? We mm-hmm. don't want to reshame ourselves that we know we need to get more sleep, but yes. we just can't access it. How do we? That first tip was brilliant, setting up the framework around mm-hmm. you. Although, as I was sharing, I suspect that, in my experience, it's often us, it's often the mothers yes. who are putting the barriers up to yeah. our own rest as opposed to those around us. Right. right. And one of the key points
2: that turns being a human giver into being human giver syndrome is the belief that your failure to give deserves to be punished. And sleep deprivation is a form of punishment. I can't sleep. I don't get to have that thing that I need until I do what everybody else needs. But the fact is you don't deserve to be punished. You do deserve to be well-rested. You do deserve to feel strong and whole and healthy. Human giver syndrome and misogyny and the patriarchy all benefit from when women are too exhausted to be healthy and happy and communicative and have the energy they need to create change in the world. It just serves the patriarchy if you allow yourself to be depleted. So if you want to smash some patriarchy, get the get sleep. Get rest. Leave. Yes. The email does not smash the patriarchy. The laundry does not smash the patriarchy. What's going to make change in the world is you acknowledging, I deserve to feel rested. I deserve to feel whole. I don't have to wait. I don't have to punish myself and suffer until everyone else has what they need before I can take care of myself and make sure that I have what I need.
1: And anybody who feels like I deserve less than to be fully rested is part of the patriarchy, is part of human giver syndrome and trying to kill me slowly and they can go fuck themselves and I'm going to bed. This is our optimistic tip. If you notice yourself having to make a choice between laundry or cooking a spectacularly complicated meal or checking email or whatever else versus sleep, you'd be like, you know what? The patriarchy wants me to do all these things and sacrifice my sleep and the patriarchy can
0: sit on it and I'm going to go to bed. We need to talk about toxic perfectionism in here. Oh, gosh. Yeah. yeah. This directly interplays as to why we find it so hard to access sleep when the house is a mess, when whatever, you know. So tell us what perfectionism (laughs) is. Tell us what toxic perfectionism is and what we do about it.
1: So perfectionism comes in a lot of forms. One part of perfectionism is having really high standards, and there's actually nothing inherently toxic or dangerous about having high standards. It's sort of great to have high standards. It becomes toxic when your standard is so high it's literally impossible even though part of your brain is like, no, it's not impossible. You should be able to do this impossible thing. An example of toxic perfectionism is any plan that doesn't take into account the fact that you are a mammal who needs to pee and eat and rest and experience love. And a mother. Right. So if it doesn't take that into account, then it's an impossible plan. And if you believe that your inability to achieve that impossible standard makes you a failure, not just that you have failed at this task, but that you are a failure, and so you beat the crap out of yourself, you end up with all of these injuries because you're beating yourself up. So if you imagine you have physically beaten yourself up for falling short of a goal, first of all, would you ever parent your child that way if they fall short of a goal like that are you going to like yell at them and tell them about all the ways that they are fundamentally flawed, broken and inadequate as a person? You would never treat your child that way. So, if you find yourself beating the crap out of yourself, does that make you stronger? Like so that you can like get up on that horse again so that you can like get up the next day and try again? No, you now have to recover from the injury you've just inflicted on yourself, right? And so you try to work toward this impossible goal when you are even been more impaired than you were before because you beat the shit out of yourself and so you fail again and so you beat the shit out of yourself again which reopens the wounds that had maybe just begun to heal so that's toxic perfectionism and
0: that's burnout oh yeah when it gets when really bad striving you... for something impossible to reach and making absolute shaming statements about yourself,
1: Yeah, that's burnout. Yeah, so it gets to the point where part of you knows the goal is impossible, so you can't even get started. You know that feeling where like you know what the steps are, and you can't take that first step, because part of your brain knows that it's impossible, knows that you're going to fail, and so you can't even take the first step. That's the sort of like hopeless, helpless, lying in bed, can't drag your ass out of bed, well, have to get out of bed. That's Amelia's yeah.
0: finding it hard to get out of bed That's in the,
1: the pit of despair, when the first thing you need is help
0: and you mentioned help and helplessness and i want to talk about learned helplessness mm-hmm. which i think links in that's where we are yeah all of this that's where we are right so we've talked about toxic perfectionism we've talked about some of the solutions for that earlier on in the conversation what is this idea of helplessness and then what is learned helplessness <sighs>
2: Helplessness is learned not as information that you acquire over time, but as a response that's carved into your nervous system. How they experiment on rats to do this is they, let's start with the shuttle box. You have a a rat and he's in this little box that sort of zaps his feet. It doesn't hurt him, but it's uncomfortable. He doesn't like it. So there's happily a little gate. He can run out, zoop, escape from the gate. Yay, happy rat. If you take a rat and put him in the shuttle box. He will try to escape because he discovers that, oh, agency, I can take action and solve my problem, yay. So let's take another rat and put him in another situation. It's called the forced swim test, and you can tell by the name that it's not good. They put a rat in a tank, and the tank is full of water and has no place to give the rat purchase. So the rat swims and swims and swims and swims and swims and swims until he's exhausted and finally gives up. He has learned that nothing he does can get him to safety. So he just floats, which is uh, the lowest energy possible way to maintain life until like somebody pulls him out. So you pull him out, you dry him off. His physiology has learned that nothing he does can get him to safety. He's so learned helplessness. So you put him in the shuttle box, and now, zap, his feet are uncomfortable, doors open. But his physiology, his nervous system, has learned that nothing he does takes him to safety. So he doesn't even try to escape. And for those of us who have been in situations where we cannot get ourselves to safety, we cannot find a place where we're not stressed all the time. There's nothing that has ever taught us that something that we do can help us or bring us to a place of safety. We're trapped. We are trapped. We feel trapped and our bodies cannot try. Like we could choose to do it if we wanted to. We can't our bodies won't? They've learned that the most efficient way to save yourself, to rescue yourself, is to conserve energy and just float and until and someone. Yeah. And is this can pull what you, you mean
0: when you say the game is rigged against yes women? So if we take the rat analogy, the buzzy floor is the patriarchy? Yep. Is yep. everything that you No,
1: it's a rat. combination of the buzzy floor and the forced swim or the door doesn't open. So we're trapped. So we're put in this. So when you read all this research, there are hundreds of studies like this. There's a part of you that wants to go up to the rat and be like, dude, the game is rigged. They are fucking with you. They don't want you to be able to get out. It would help so much if the rat could just know. And when they do these studies on humans, they actually do that. So in one study where they're playing an annoying noise and some of the participants, there's a way they can turn it off. And for some of the participants, there's no way for them to turn it off, though they've been told there is a way. At the end of the experiment, they make sure they say to the helpless participants, Hey, listen, the game was rigged. There was no way to turn it off. It wasn't you. You weren't failing the game was rigged. And it's instantly a relief for these participants. They can be like, okay, I'm not crazy. There was nothing wrong. The game was rigged. Because as far as rat research goes, it may or may not reflect human physiology. But what
2: they've learned is that when you put humans in a helpless situation, you tell them, oh yeah, you could turn that noise off. Just figure it out. And it turns out there is no way. They leave with the same physiological characteristics as those rats had. They are physically depressed. Their energy is low. Their dopamine
0: levels are cut in half. And this makes me want to cry and it makes me want to scream and because this is what I want, that
1: to feeling learn. is why chapter four is about the patriarchy our <laughs> job is to say look the game is rigged yeah the the is game game is it's not that you are failing
0: so if you are experiencing burnout all <laughs> the things that we've talked about and you know it says on the front of the book for every woman who thinks i'm not enough what the message is is that it is not your fault yes the game is rigged mm-hmm
1: I don't know if it's on purpose. I think it might be on purpose. I think it's on purpose. But we're, yes, if you feel trapped, it's because you're trapped in a rigged game. And just knowing that in and of itself helps a lot. In the movie Gaslight, from
2: where her husband is flickering the lights and rummaging around in the attic and telling her, oh, you're just imagining things. It's your fragile nerves and lying to her. And she feels like she's losing her mind. And there's no one to confirm for her, yes, the gaslights are flickering. It's not your fault. And then at the end, the police officer, Joseph Cotton, comes in and says, yes, ma'am, the gaslights are flickering. And it's so validating and vindicating. "Yes, Yes, it hasn't been me this whole time. My inner experience was true. Yes. And the lies I was told, by this external force, are false, and I was right all along. So, if you're feeling like this can't be right, I am frustrated. Right. Like, why, why do I feel crazy? Yeah. It's because the gaslights are flickering.
1: Yeah. One of the things that we've noticed over the course of talking about the book with people is that what it comes down nice. to ultimately is we want the book to help women recognize all of the cultural noise that is just like filling their heads with who they're supposed to be, what their internal experience is supposed to be like, and helping them to quiet that noise and tune into what their own internal voice is saying to them and trust and believe that voice. How many of us were raised in a culture that told us to believe everyone else's opinions about our bodies and our internal experience more than we believe what our internal experience has been trying to tell us, has been begging for, mercy has been screaming the truth and if we can just believe our own internal experience more than we believe all this noise recognizing that the noise is real those pressures exist and we do actually get punished when we violate these cultural expectations like that's some bullshit that's the rigged game but you are a sane person conscious human within this ridiculous system, and there are strategies that you can implement to begin fortifying yourself against the rigged game, you can recognize that you're being gaslit. So completing the cycle is one of them. Giving your body what it needs in order to sustain your life in a healthy, balanced way. That's the 42% rest. So That's the 40, oh gosh, people hate this number. So what your body needs for rest is for you to spend 42% of your time replenishing yourself. That's 10 hours a day. It doesn't have to be 10 hours every day, but it has to be on average, over the course of a week or a month. forty. Then people hear that and they're like, hell no, that's never going to happen. But here's the thing. We don't mean that you should take the 42%. We mean that if you don't get the rest, the rest will come and get you. It will grab you by the face and pin you to the ground, put its foot on your chest, and say, I am the victor. Anyone who's ever, like, Turned in a big work project and suddenly had the flu. Like hours later,
0: knows the experience. Well, you hear that all the time from my clients. They go on holiday yep. and, oh, they and get, get sick. Yeah, exactly. And what That's was actually happening? We're not, we're not resting enough.
1: And rest doesn't have to mean sleep. Oh no, absolutely not. In fact, physical activity can be sleep. Loving connection is sleep preparing and paying attention to and consuming food is rest. And even working on a project that really engages you but isn't your job work. Like when I was writing the book, I also wrote a novel and that was rest for me because it used a different gear in my brain. So
0: there's a short shorthand for this, if it feels restorative. Yes, right. Okay. So if something feels restorative, we need to be resting, sleeping, or doing restorative yeah. actions. And even
2: for um, ten hours a day. Daydreaming, letting your mind wander yeah. is yep. a form of rest. Yeah. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. Really important. There's all this sort of like cultural conversation about like make it being focused and keeping your attention on a thing and not letting your mind wander.
0: And there's an and amazing I- book on that. It's not coming to me. I'll put it in the show notes. There's okay. A brilliant book by a psychologist about the power of imagination and daydreaming. It's, yes, it is so
1: essential. And we need to give ourselves permission to just like let our minds wander into the future and into the past, as long as we're not stewing in self-criticism or other negative affect, if we're, like, just fantasizing about what the world could be like or what we might do in the future, that's really healthy and, in fact, necessary.
2: Yes. I want to rewind for just one second because we started talking about rest when we were talking about unlearning helplessness. Oh, yes. And I just wanted to say oh, do a thing. one Sorry. of the things that they do with puppies, they put the puppies in the shuttle box, and once a puppy has yeah. learned helplessness, it's I not know, ethical I know to leave a puppy in a state of learned helplessness that's the thing it's not ethical to leave a puppy in a state of learned helplessness but we do it
1: to women okay go ahead
2: so what they do with puppies is is they just pick the puppy up and they kind of like they drag it across through the door and be like look you can get through the door you can escape the shock and it takes a couple of tries but they actually physically Physically move move the puppy and show it look your body for burnout woman well when I was moving About two years ago, the house sale went really badly, and I had to live with Emily (laughs) for six weeks. The sale of our previous house and the purchase of our new house, it was just a shit show. And so it was me and my husband and Emily and her husband and our two dogs and her two dogs and her two cats and our cat in her 1,200-square-foot house. And after about three weeks of this, I was bedridden with despair, yeah, so frustrated. So Emily had to go to work. She had a job and stuff, and she had to go do things. And she texted me a picture of a pile of, I don't remember what it was like. It was different kinds of candy that had to be sorted into bags for her orientation group of students that were coming. And she's like, I need these candies sorted. And I was like, oh. So I just go and just sort candies. Do anything. Show your body that it is capable of accomplishing something yeah anything show your physiology show your nervous system do something you can escape from a trap even if it's not the big trap even if it's not the big rigged game it can do something the day that i woke up to learn that donald trump was going to be the president of my country like that day the despair was so deep in me I was just moved into my new house. So what I did was I dug a trench and filled it with gravel and made a pathway from my front door to my parking area in my new house. It took two and a half hours on a weekday morning when I had to be at work very soon. But I had to do something because I can't
1: fix Donald Trump. that's
0: completing the stress cycle that we talked about.
1: Partly. So it's physical activity, but it was also accomplishing a thing, making a thing. Crochet can do the same thing. Look, even if I can't end the patriarchy today, I can make this. to
0: do something that is within your immediate control. Sometimes I talk about this with clients. When you feel thirsty... Go and get a glass of water. Yes. Yeah. Look, I did it. These simple, yes. tiny, little, yeah, tiny, tiny, tiny actions. I rescued
1: myself. I, yeah, I, uh, I won a game. Even Amelia. If I can't win that other game. Has a friend who had really pretty severe postnatal depression because her birth was traumatic, and for her, literally leaving the house, walking around the block once, like I did it. I left the house. I did a thing and like in tiny increments she was able to come back to a sense of her body was capable of Agency existing in the world. Safety. Yes. This
0: is tiny small. Look I did it. Actions, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Emily okay. then
2: also after she texted me the picture of the candy and the thing, she texted me a picture of the puppy being dragged to the thing oh, yeah. to like let me know here. This is an evidence-based practice <laughs> yes. that we're engaging in right now. You're gonna do a thing, I love yeah.
1: That. There's this contradiction between rest and doing this because people can get trapped in this idea that if only I can bake the forty-six trays of cupcakes that are necessary for tomorrow, then I will have done something. Then I'm in control. but I'm not trapped. And so there is a balance you have to find between like, I'm going to do this thing and it's going to feel rewarding because I did a thing. I am not trapped. I am not helpless. Versus I'm going to go to bed. Because that is what this monkey suit that I walk around in requires. And I'm not going to let the fact that I'm in this rigged game prevent me from meeting my own basic biological needs. And I
0: think that's a really important point because this isn't mindless action, it's mindful action. So it's having a little bit of space in order to check in with yourself. Mm-hmm. Regardless of what the world needs from me right now, the game is rigged. Mm -hmm. What is it that I need? Do I need to go and dig a trench because I'm effing angry? Yeah. Do I need to go and rest because I'm exhausted? Or do I need to drink a glass of water because I'm so thirsty? Or do I need to
1: lie in bed with my spouse and just cry for 10 minutes? Yeah.
0: (laughs) Is there anything that we haven't talked about that you want the mothers of the UK to know about burnout? Well, the top three things from the
2: book are, number one, wellness is not a state of being. It's a state of action. It is the freedom to oscillate through the cycles of being human. Number two is 42% rest. Right. Number three is the solution to burnout is not self-care. It's all of us caring for each other.
1: So when you feel stuck, that is where burnout begins. And the longer you stay stuck, the more burnout you get. First step is reaching out for help. Mm -hmm. Second step is turning toward your own difficult internal experience with kindness and compassion. And the third is recognizing that dealing with the causes of your stress is a separate process from dealing with the stress itself. And you have to do both. When it comes down to a choice between one or the other, choose taking care of your body first so that you can be well enough to deal with whatever it is out in the world that's causing the stress
0: brilliant and i always ask the same question at the end and i don't know if you know i'm going to ask you this no which is if you could give just one gift to all the mothers in the whole world what would it be a wife Let you have one each a wife i'd love a wife (laughs) (laughs) yeah what would a wife give all the things that they give
1: it's actually Amy Poehler in her book, Yes, Please, she talks about every mother needs a wife. You need someone who does as much caretaking as you do to help balance out the amount of effort that it takes to not just like the physical demands of it, but the emotional demands. Because it takes more than one person who just feels that moral responsibility to give, mm-hmm. to have enough to give.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would like to give every mother in the world permission to fail and be terrible at as many things as they try that being a mess is totally great that missing Mm -hmm. the basket is completely okay hey i failed wow i'll do better next time but i failed that's it's totally great
0: hallelujah thank (laughs) you very much so that's it Thank you for listening to the episode. I hope you really enjoyed it. And if you did, please do leave a review on iTunes. It does make a massive difference to the number of mums that we can reach with this content. If you were listening to that episode thinking about one of your friends I'd be very grateful and also if you want to send me any comments or thoughts about the episode then please pop over onto instagram at motherkind underscore zoe and also just to let you know about my coaching so I do work one-on-one with mums on my program which is a three-month program called reconnect to you so if you want to work with me on taking your power back in any area of your life, then please do get in touch. Just drop me an email, zoe at motherkind.co or look on the website, www.motherkind.co. That's it. And I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. Take care.